my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. We are spending these first few episodes, uh, and by few, I mean almost the first two dozen episodes of our second season, looking at the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And we are using the excellent book by Vaughn Roberts called God's Big Picture. And the link for that book is in the show notes and on our website. Yes, we have a website. It's BibleLabPodcast.com. You can go there. You can find all of our episodes from season one. And we're organizing those both by book of the Bible and also... uh, Soon, we'll have them organized by theme. So you can look at, hey, what are the episodes about the kingdom of God or the Holy Spirit or salvation or, you know, godly living? And we'll have those organized for you. So that is what we're doing. We're looking at the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation using God's big picture. And the way Roberts organizes his material is he looks at Scripture through the lens of the kingdom of God, which is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing and being led by God's king. According to Roberts, the kingdom of God Uh, changes and develops through eight distinct phases in Scripture. They all start with a P. We've looked at the pattern of the kingdom. That's where everything was made and made well by God in Genesis 1 and 2. Perfect relationships, perfect harmony existing. We've looked at the parish kingdom. That's the fall in Genesis 3 through 11, the entrance of sin and death into the world. We've looked at the promised kingdom in Genesis 12. This is where God makes a promise to Abraham that through Abraham's family, he will bring blessing to the world and reverse the curse. We looked at the partial kingdom, covering most of the Old Testament, looking at how God is fulfilling these promises partially through the family of Abraham and the nation of Israel. We have looked at the prophesied kingdom, how God is speaking to his people as they sin and even after their exile and when they return. We looked in our last couple of episodes at the present kingdom, looking at how Jesus Christ has come and is bringing in the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Now, Up until this point, all of our phases have been past tense. But our seventh phase, the proclaimed kingdom, that we're going to look at in our next two episodes, this one and the next, this is present tense for us. The proclaimed kingdom is where we live. So let's jump in and let's explore the proclaimed kingdom. In this episode, we're going to get a general lay of the land, and we're going to sort of zero in on the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives And then in our next episode, we're going to look at how those promises of people and land and rule and blessing and king are being kept in this particular phase of the kingdom. So let's explore the proclaimed kingdom. Now, the Jews of Jesus's day believed that the Messiah, that deliverer promised all the way back in Genesis 3, that they knew would come from the family of David. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come once. And when he came that first time, all the promises of God would be completely kept in his first coming. But we now know that the Messiah comes twice. So in Jesus' first coming, he defeated Satan. But Satan, though defeated, is like a snake with his head chopped off. He is still capable of biting and injecting venom and is still capable of great damage. The promises of God's kingdom are not going to be completely fulfilled until the second coming of Christ. And this is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 13, to watch, to keep watch, because we don't know when he's coming back. We just know that he is. And that means that we, me and you right now, are living in the last days. If you listened to really any number of episodes from the first season, you know that despite what we might have in our mind from movies or books, Biblically speaking, the last days are the days between the first and second comings of Christ. On God's sort of end times to-do list, 
There's nothing left to do except send his son back. So we are living in the last days. This is the period of time in which the New Testament was written. It's the period in which we live. And it lies at the intersection of two ages. You can think about where we live right now, uh, sort of chronologically speaking, as the overlap of two circles. If If you have ever seen a Venn diagram where you get these two circles or more overlapping so you can see what they have in common, I want you to imagine one circle is the present age. And it's the age that began with the entrance of sin and death into the world. Back in Genesis 3, it's an age of sin and suffering, sadness, sickness, death. The devil is active. That's the present age. And then the other circle is the age to come. And the age to come is when Christ comes and does away with evil and wickedness. And we see the gospel and Christ's kingdom being established. We live in the overlap, the intersection of those two ages. We live in the last days. And this returns us to a theme that we talked about a good bit in our first season, the idea of the already and the not yet. Because in one sense, the kingdom of God is a right now present tense reality. Jesus has come. He has died. He has risen. The Holy Spirit has come. The gospel is being announced. The power of God is moving against the forces of darkness. The gospel and the kingdom is right now. But at the same time, the kingdom is not yet. Satan is still active. Sin is still active. Death is still active. And so there is still more to come in God's kingdom. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come, because all of God's kingdom that he intends for us to enjoy is not yet here. So if we've trusted in Christ, we belong to the new creation. This earth is not our home. That's why so often the Bible describes Christians as being pilgrims, as sojourners, passing through. This earth is not our home. This age is not our home. But at the same time, if we trusted in Christ, yes, we belong to the new creation, but we have not yet received all of the blessings. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we only have hope in this life, if Christians, if this is all we get is what we have right now, then we're to be pitied above all men. But this isn't all we're going to get. We're going to get the universe and spend eternity with our Heavenly Father in a perfected universe. That is the blessing that God still has out there in the future for us. So why the delay? Why has there been, as I'm recording this, almost 2,000 years between the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of the Spirit, and we're still waiting for his return? And Even as I ask that, and perhaps you are or have asked that, and if you haven't, you certainly will, understand that we're not the first generation to ask that question. Why why the delay? Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, and then verses 8 and 9. He says, know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. So we're living in the last days. Peter, writing almost 2,000 years ago, says, hey guys, scoffers are going to come. They're going to follow their own sinful desires, and they will say to Christians, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, so all the way back at the beginning, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So even back 2,000 years ago, people were laughing at Christians for saying that Jesus is going to come back. So what's our answer? Here's our answer, verses 8 and 9. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The answer, Peter says, the reason for the delay is so that more people have a chance to hear the gospel and repent before it's too late. After Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples and he is teaching them. And he says this in Luke 24, 46 through 49. 
Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You, the disciples, you, my apostles, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in this passage, we see both a command and a promise. The command, and linking this back to what Peter said about why there's a delay so that people can reach repentance, the command is proclaim the gospel. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins is possible because the Messiah has come and died and he is risen in victory from the grave. The command is proclaim the gospel in all the world, but that, friends, humanly speaking, that's an impossible job. And that's why there's also a promise. And the promise is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. And this is something where, depending on what sort of faith tradition you come from, the Spirit is either someone that uh, you either never talk about and get really uncomfortable talking about, or perhaps the Spirit, you've been sitting here just wondering, when are we going to talk about the Spirit? Let's talk about the Spirit. And you are a person who is very comfortable with talking about the Holy Spirit. But let's see where we can find some common ground here. So after Jesus rises from the dead, he spends 40 days teaching his disciples. And before he ascends back up into heaven, he says, stay right here. The Spirit is going to come. Help from heaven is going to come. A few days after this, we see 120 of Jesus' followers gathered together during the Feast of Pentecost. That's one of the the feasts that the Jews celebrated every single year. If you'd like some more information about that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to our first episode from the Gospel of John as we talked about uh, the Jewish calendar and how we see that fleshed out in the New Testament. At any rate, this is a festival. And during this festival, it says that the room begins to shake and tongues of fire descend on the apostles, on these 120 people gathered in this room, and they go out, and there are Jews from every nation, right? Hundreds of different languages and cultures, Jewish people from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem, and these 120 people go out and begin to speak the gospel in languages they have no way of knowing, humanly speaking, and they preach Christ. And so here at the very beginning of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we see that the Spirit is sent for a specific purpose to help Christians spread the good news about Christ. Friends, everything the Spirit does falls under that heading. We have the Holy Spirit. Everything that he does, whether it's speaking in tongues, whether it's miracles, whether it's strengthening, encouraging, and helping us fight temptation, all of those things fall under the heading of spreading the good news about Christ throughout the world. The last days that we live in right now are in many ways the age of the Spirit. The Spirit is fully God, which means he is eternal, and he was certainly present and active in the Old Testament, but only certain people got the Spirit for certain tasks. And we'll explore some of that, particularly in our episodes pertaining uh, to the book of Numbers. But only certain people got the Spirit for certain tasks, but now all of God's people get the Spirit. So what does the Spirit do? And again, I want to make sure we understand, the Spirit is a person. So I I may slip up, and if I do, you know, Lord, forgive me. Uh, I may say it, but that is not correct. The spirit is not a force. He's not gravity. He's not electricity. He's a person with a personality and desires, and we can grieve the spirit with our sin. So he is a person. So I'm speaking with the you know male pronoun, he. So what does the spirit do? We can organize it under three main headings. First, the spirit brings new birth. In John chapter three, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, 
He says to him in John 3, verses 3 and 5, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, And I would argue that this is Jesus pointing back to Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God speaks of his new covenant age, where he will wash the hearts of his people clean with water and put his spirit in them. I think this is talking about new birth in Ezekiel, and I think that's what Jesus is referencing. Unless someone's born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the spirit brings about new birth. And how does the spirit do this? There are, for lack of a better term, three steps. So first, the spirit convicts us of sin. He convicts us of our guilty status before God and shows us that we are not able to save ourselves. The second thing the Spirit does after he convinces us and convicts us of sin, the Spirit points us to Jesus as the one who can deal with it. The answer is not within. The answer is not try harder. The answer is not cross your fingers and hope you get lucky on judgment day. The Spirit says, fly to Christ. Look to the one who died to deal with your sins. And as he points us to Jesus, the Spirit This is the third thing. He points us to Jesus and he helps us. He opens our eyes to understand truth about Jesus. As Paul says, writing a letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So how does Paul know that God has elected these Thessalonians for salvation? He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The Spirit open their eyes. Paul gave this, you know, probably a very similar gospel presentation to these people as he did to other people who didn't believe, but the Spirit opened their eyes so they were convicted of the truth, convicted of the the truth of their sin, the truth of who Jesus is. And he enables us to put our trust in him. So the Spirit convicts us of sin. He points us to Jesus. And as he does this, he opens our eyes to understand and he enables us to put our trust in him. And all of this happens, the miracle of new birth happens as the Spirit and God's Word work together. So friends, never set the Word and the Spirit against one another. The scriptures that we love, that we cherish, friends, these are breathed out by God and inspired. These writings that we read were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, you, Christians, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The spirit of God and the word of God agree. So if someone comes to you with a, a word from the Lord, right? Oh, I, the, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he has a word for you. I, I would encourage you to listen to that word, but I would encourage you to listen with an open Bible because the spirit of God and the word of God will never contradict. And the word of God is what we want to measure every single human word against. So the first thing the Spirit does is he brings about new birth. He makes salvation possible. But then the Spirit abides in us and he equips us to serve Christ. And we serve Christ primarily in sort of two venues that the Spirit empowers both of these things. First, gospel proclamation. Acts 4.8 is remarkable. Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, who were, who were they? Rulers of the people and elders. Friends, these are the very people who crucified Christ a few weeks before this. And Peter, who the night of Jesus' arrest, ran and then lied because he was scared of a little servant girl. Now here's Peter filled with the Spirit, preaching Christ in boldness to the very people who had Jesus crucified. So the first way the Spirit equips us to serve Christ is through gospel proclamation. And second, we are equipped to serve Christ in our ministry to one another. 
We are members of one body designed by God to work together for the glory of his name. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, a letter written to a church obsessed with spiritual gifts and jockeying for position and bragging and boasting against one another about whose gift was more spectacular. Paul says to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So I have spiritual gifts, but they're not for me. They're for me to use for you. And you have spiritual gifts and I need them. And this is why, friends, local churches are critical, essential, because I am not an island. I don't have everything I need. I mean, yes, I I have God. I have his Holy Spirit inside of me. But God so designed this Christian life to work in a way that we need one another. I don't have all that I need. I need you and you need me. We need one another. And in relying on one another, we're ultimately relying on God and he gets the glory. So the Spirit brings new birth. He equips us to serve Christ. But also, not to miss the obvious, he produces holiness. The Holy Spirit is given to us to help make us holy. Now, when we think about salvation, the Bible actually uses three tenses. When you think about past, present, and future, all three of those tenses are used when we talk about salvation. So, for example, the Bible says that we have been, past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved, have been, past tense, through faith, And when Paul says you've been saved, he means saved from the wrath of God that was due you because of your sin and rebellion. That's a past tense thing. If you're a Christian, you have been saved. You will never need to be saved again from the wrath of God. You can't lose your salvation. Your righteous verdict is written in the blood of Christ and it will never be erased. The Bible also speaks about salvation in the future tense. It it says that we will be saved from the presence of sin. One day when Christ returns, Satan and sin and death will be swept away into hell, and we will never have to worry about temptation or sin ever again. No more guilt, no more shame, no more fear, gone. That is obviously not where we live right now. That is off in the future. So we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin, but right now we are being saved from the power of sin. And that present tense process is what we call sanctification. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, holiness. To sanctify is the process, little by little, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy. When we become Christians, we don't just stop sinning. In fact, I would argue that the Bible teaches we're never going to stop sinning in this life. But we don't have time to dive fully into this idea. But here's just kind of a, I think, just a rough guide for you. As you live the Christian life, two things should be happening with regards to sin. One, you should be sinning less frequently. As you walk with Jesus and your mind and your thoughts and your words and your actions become more and more conformed to his image and his standards, we should be sinning less frequently. And at the same time, though we are sinning less frequently, the sin we do commit should be bothering us more and more. So by God's grace, I've been a Christian for about 12, 13 years. I don't know exactly when I was saved. And by God's grace, I don't sin as frequently as I did back then. But also by God's grace, the sin I do commit bothers me more than it did. And that's the work of the Spirit in our lives. He gives us new desires. He gives us just this new yearning to be free from sin and to live in dependence on him so that we can say no to the temptation of sin and say yes to Jesus. 
God is at work within you. Brother, sister, no matter what the struggle you're facing, God is at work within you to help you fight sin and become more like Jesus. And this ultimately is something that, yes, we do. We must put to death sin. Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit you put to death. But we also know that Philippians 2.12 and 13 says, It's God who's at work in us to cause us to even desire this. Our salvation from the penalty of sin and from the presence of sin and from the power of sin is all a work of grace. And the Spirit of God is involved in all of this. And so I would just encourage you, friends, to depend on the Spirit, to ask God to show you where you're struggling in sin, what promises of God are you not believing, what lies of sin are you believing, and ask for more faith. And that's what the Spirit does. He gives us more faith, and He gives us more faith to fight the power of sin and become more like Jesus. So friends, the next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to look at how each of God's promises that we've looked at over and over again in this series are being kept in the seventh phase. But for now, take up and read. God bless.